Hi everyone, this is the Desi Condition. I'm Shima. And I'm Tanushri. And today we're going to continue our conversation on trauma bonding. Last week we started with our friend Tabasham helping us explore trauma bonding through her experience working with domestic violence victims and also her experience helping these victims through their trauma. So trauma bonding, just to recap, is when people are bonded through traumatic experience and sometimes that's violence and this is why we choose to use domestic violence as a tool to continue to explore trauma bonding. So our friend Tabasham is here again to share some of her experiences and expertise. So we'll get more in depth about the family dynamic in this episode and particularly with youth and teenagers and talking about why it's hard to acknowledge domestic abuse and just about starting the conversation. And before we get into that, I want to drop a few trigger warnings here. We'll be talking about violence and abuse as well as sexual abuse. So I just want to make you aware of that. And if you have any questions, any specific questions about domestic violence, if you know someone that needs help, or if you need help, then please call the hotline at 1-800-621-HOPE. It's free and confidential and there is language access. Can you speak a little bit to your experience with how teenagers come in and deal with, you know, the their mom or their dad coming in with them and what what's the teenager's point of view so I, I look like them to them <laughs> so they often come to me very frankly and it seems like a lot of their parents or their guardians kind of want to use me almost as a vehicle to get their points across but usually I'm just there to listen and just be there for them and kind of give them the big sister vibes like it's okay if you're smoking but just don't get caught things like that <laughs> okay. um, which I no- normally wouldn't divulge to their parents but when it comes to the actual trauma that they're facing it's really it's quite real and it does show up in their relationships I think a lot of the times it comes up in the the type of romantic relationships they might be pursuing or um, shows up in their lives I, I can't say whether or not there's a direct correlation I can only speak from my experiences with the mm-hmm. teenagers I've encountered but like it's really trying to understand how a person should be treating me how mm-hmm. I should be treating them yeah. um, I think the teenage years are such weird I mean they're your formative years and so the relationships you make at that point are, I think any relationship will affect you forever, but especially at that point in your, in your formative years, like people who have been through experiences like that tend to gravitate toward abusive people or abusive relationships. And so I just kind of wonder how, because they, they do know if they've watched something happen to another family member or if they, you know, they themselves have been abused, they, they know like to some degree that this is wrong, this shouldn't be happening to them or to me, but they go ahead and kind of make those relationships anyway. And it, it happens and you see adults doing that too. Yeah, it's possible. I think as with everyone, young folks process their trauma in various ways and it shows up in their relationships and lives. I do notice that one thing that has come up in almost every single relationship I've had with um, the youth in my work is that they're they're not going to share with their parents. They're just not going to. I think there's always this feeling of they won't understand, they will judge me, they will say no. Um, Or they'll see you differently. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's also something. But in my experience, I noticed that this stuff comes to the surface one way or another to the guardians, and it's really about how that conversation is navigated. Again, I do think from the counselor perspective, it's a little bit easier to navigate those conversations, but I think if it was just under the household, sometimes uh, it can get very, very tricky where, say, the guardian would not want the child to be dating, but the child does it anyway. I'm sure this is something it's very familiar. I mean, at that young age, you have this passion, right? And you want to show it in different ways. But if you're lying and go about going behind your parents' back, that actually puts you in a more precarious situation. So those are the times when it does come to the surface. A teacher might find out, a counselor might find out. And if, God forbid, if a child's in harm's way, you have to report it. And those are the times when the, ch- the parent finds out about it. And it's almost like they... It's a disappointment to a lot of the guardians where they feel like they failed mm-hmm. as a parent or as a mother in some cases because in some families it's the mother's responsibility to oversee oversee mm-hmm. the affairs of the children. So in working with the youth, I think it's always good to emphasize where they're coming from. You know, their family dynamic does play a role in how they're going about their relationships in school and after school activities. Making a very obvious, like, okay, you know, this is these are the type of relationships you've learned, but what are the relationships you want to pursue? And wh- what does that look like for you? Um, how would you want to be treated? How are you treating other people? What do you like? What don't you like? I think these are the questions you don't actually tend to ask mm-hmm. our youth. Um, but it can be very empowering, actually, once they start yeah. to think about it and not really looking at you know, whatever happens as a mistake, but as a lesson. So there have been situations where say like, I don't know, I guess sexting and Snapchatting and certain photos, it's much easier now to mm-hmm. like distribute it than before and, and not know whose hands they're going to end up in. So situations like that, when they occur, it's really just sitting down with the youth and reflecting what happened here. If this ever happens again, how would you go about it differently? Mm-hmm. I think just having those conversations is really important. It is disheartening to see things come up again and again, but every single time it does come again, it's just having that hope that next time it can be different, it can be handled differently. I think also another way of just really empowering the youth is kind of making them ambassadors of anti-violence, giving them the training too, so that Mm -hmm. they can bring back their experiences of what they've seen in their home and Mm -hmm. help other youth, because not everyone comes forward, not everyone, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, is connected Mm -hmm. to these really great organizations throughout New York city just adding on to what you're saying that reminds me of that concept of one of the best ways to learn something is by teaching it to someone else in high school and college I remember whenever I was studying a hard subject or preparing for an exam and I didn't understand something my study partners and I would take turns explaining things to each other as if we're the teachers and that kind of gives you ownership over that thing itself and then build your confidence from there I think you're right like it's it can be very empowering yeah, I think giving young folks a space to really explore it, it, explore their experiences and how that's going to show up in the rest of their lives is so important. Everyone's going to go about it differently. So for some people, it just makes them want to persevere even more. They're like, no, I will rise above this and I'm going to move out and do something, which is a, another whole touchy subject in mm-hmm. itself and wanting to move out from your South Asian family. But then there are youth who are like, 
no, I, I want to better my relationships with my family members, and it has to start with me, and it's very commendable, also it's a struggle. Too. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of pressure, so you do see that sometimes where you take a caretaker role in their own yeah, family. and they themselves are still at this space where they're trying to figure out who they are, mm-hmm. and they have to take on the responsibilities of whole other bodies yeah in addition to that there's a lot of potential there is a lot of potential so um i think it's really great and i think in the counseling space oftentimes like i had to just serve as a mediator to be like well as a parent you have these needs and and your child has these needs is there any way to meet in the middle and that can be a really tough situation Mm -hmm. um because it feels like you're americanizing quote-unquote the parent Mm -hmm. and like you know having the child concede to south asian culture but i think meeting in the middle it's the closest we have at this point Mm -hmm. to really come to an understanding yeah making some steps is bigger than making no steps Mm -hmm. I read a quote online that I read it like several years ago and it just stayed with me. But it's like, don't set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. Yeah. I constantly That's remind cool. myself of that. I love it. I feel like I have to keep providing like, yeah. or it's not, or I'm not doing enough for that person. I mean, like, definitely take care. It's, it's like on both ends of the spectrum, like you putting that much energy for a person and then putting so much energy in yourself to not keep perpetuating this this whatever it is you're trying to you know break free from but we're gonna honestly there's gonna be relapses we're gonna make mistakes but it gets better every single time and I think that's what I always emphasize with clients like yes you might end up in that cycle again but it will become better I hope at least I trust in that because at least today you have a little bit more knowledge and that's power too Mm -hmm. Actually, yesterday I was reading a little bit speeches by Martin Luther King, and he was talking about the different types of love. And the first and most common type of love is utilitarian love, where it's like you have to do something in order to get the love, or like love comes to you because... Conditional. Exactly. And it's like really common. And I think this idea in South Asian families that family members are assets and you have to be contributing something. I think that happens with the children, too. The more children you have, sons being more lucrative for the family, the more of an asset is to the family because the more it can bring the family up. And so if they see that a child has a certain skill set, whether it's like an emotional like um, susceptibility to handle family situations or like being really good at doing the taxes, they will take that on and they will use it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and They'll being, milk it to the bone. Exactly, oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And like being a quote-unquote good son or daughter is like yeah. meeting these expectations that you didn't realize they had of you and because you're just, you've just been playing the role. Like mom yeah. and dad will be happy if I do this. Right, right. <laughs> and you keep yeah. doing it. And one day you realize, wait, do I have to do this? And wait, are they going to stop loving me if I stop doing the taxes? Yeah, when you're a kid, all you want to do is, like, impress your parents. So yeah. That, that they're your whole world. Yeah. yeah. I definitely agree with that. But, yeah, definitely, like, take care. It's like a journey. I, I'm on it, too. And I think when you feel vulnerable, sometimes we do go back to what we're used to. A lot of it has to do with just identifying someone's goals because that's their goal. It has nothing to do with anyone else. It's, I feel, an extension of self-love, which is a concept not everyone necessarily gets the first time, especially given, like, wherever culture or background they're coming from. 
but just emphasizing like what do you want to do what would you like for your family and for your children and shifting it to them because oftentimes in these type of relationships folks tend to think about he or she wants this my children wants this they want that but like well, how about you what about you and I think a lot of people come to a standstill and they're like wait what? what about me? Yeah. And Actually, that brings up a, a question I wanted to ask you. I was reading about how people tend to leave these abusive relationships when they realize that their abuser is like going to kill them or going to kill their children. So like, do you ever see people come in? I mean, I'm sure you probably see some people come in like just they themselves and without any children, without anybody else. I feel like that's a lot harder to do. I mean, number one thing is always safety planning. And I tend to give folks the disclaimer that I'm not saying that these things are going to happen, but I think it would be useful just to think about some of the things, some of the steps that one could take if this were to happen. I'm not trying to frame the abuser in a certain light, Mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to make them make that huge jump in their thoughts either if it is a big jump. So number one is always safety planning, preparing for the worst and honestly working on that together that's a that's definitely a collaborative approach to the safety plan like it's not me telling them what to do it's not me saying you must have a diaper bag ready it's more like what are some of the ways that you can help to perhaps disarm you know the abuser if it ever comes to that or have you ever thought about whether or not they might have a weapon or have they ever Mm -hmm. said anything about it very disarming yeah. questions. You make a good point about prompting them with these kinds of questions because I think when you're talking to someone about an abusive relationship, sometimes they'll just say like, oh, you have to get out of it. And of course, like, yeah, of course you have to get out of it. That's obvious. But it is hard when someone is thinking for you. But when you have some prompts, it just like shifts the paradigm, I think. Yeah, I think it's a more clinical approach and just yeah. asking Um and with the youth, you know, sometimes I had to do suicide assignment, uh, assessments. You have to be clear, like, do you want to end your life? Not beating around the bush. I might say, do you want to kill yourself? But I might say end your life with maybe a more culturally appropriate. Maybe that's just something they don't say in their culture. So taking a different avenue, but just being very direct, mm-hmm. you know. And th- mm-hmm. they might have yes, no, or like, uh, you know. But at least now I'm bringing it to the forefront because it has to be acknowledged I think as a worker like I do have to acknowledge that in terms of like ensuring their safety but also for them to understand like it is okay to talk about it yeah it's okay and um, I think in doing assessments I'm not a fan of intrusive questioning but oftentimes we don't have words for certain things um, in say Bengali such as marital rape Mm-hmm. It doesn't really come yeah. up, and it's not like it may not be the first thing that comes up. Actually, mm-hmm. it might be that my children have been taken away from me. How can I get them back? And then slowly, just opening up the conversation to speak about the dynamic and what might happen. And we don't even talk about the intimate goings on of a man and wife in bed, or however um, your partner identifies themselves. Um, but they might be describing it to you, though. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or, they might be saying, like, sometimes he won't stop even if I ask, or trigger warning, like, sometimes he'll wake me up and I'll get really scared. They might not even say it directly, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Okay. Um, and yeah. I'm not there to prod around, but I'll make a note of it. And mm-hmm. it could be something like just acknowledging, like, yes, we have the space to talk about that. You know, I'm here for you. And Or like that this is a, a thing that happens. It's not just an event in your life. We can identify it, label it. 
Yes, yes, I think that's very useful as well. I mean, a lot of folks just say sex. In the middle of their Bangla sentence, they'll say sex, you know, and sometimes I'll just look at them in the eye and we just have that understanding and I just nod and and then I'm like yeah whatever you feel comfortable with um it doesn't have to the conversation doesn't have to end here it doesn't have to start here like this is this space is for you because once you start once the conversation starts and it can be seemingly small information such as like what they feed their children or what time they go to sleep um, you can learn a lot about their day-to-day and oftentimes I think talk therapy is useful but it's actually sometimes in the body language and what they're not saying is also quite telling but it's not my job to understand everything about their life it's really just meeting them where they're at what is their concern right now and how can I help them to achieve it? and I think once they realize that someone's on my team someone's on my side mm-hmm. and they're here to meet my goals I can have goals I think that can be very empowering. And I think that translates to everyone. I think that can happen in our friendships too, making them aware of our goals and Mm -hmm. maybe letting them know how we can support each other. Yeah, making the conversation about them because I think it's really important. And I've definitely seen therapists who are like this that will try to make you like talk about everything in your life that like maybe you're just not there yet that you can talk about it mm-hmm. and it kind of turns into their conversation I'm I'm answering their questions rather than I'm just speaking freely yeah and I, I I'm a very big advocate of permeable boundaries um, oftentimes I look so young to them and they might be like oh you're not married you don't understand I'm like perhaps I'm totally real about it but I can tell you what I have been through and I think that depends on where you're at as a person or as a survivor or as a witness or how you've been impacted it's up to you what you want to share but it's a two-way relationship and acknowledging the power dynamics too because think Mm -hmm. about it they might be coming to you with the victim mindset but if you tell them like I too am a survivor I too have been through this it might actually create like a switch in how they perceive themselves and it doesn't have to happen but it's more like this is how I see myself after all this and maybe one day you might feel similarly that's really interesting because therapists I feel in my experience often make it a point to not the way you put it as a permeable boundary point not to divulge any information about themselves but I sometimes feel like I wish they would I don't know I feel like I definitely see how it could hurt a relationship, but I also think it would help if I knew that they had been through maybe something similar that like they can understand, not just from like a third person point of view. Yeah, and I do feel like our culture in general, we're very inquisitive. We ask, yes, where are you very from? How old are you? Yeah. <laughs> in a very blunt way. Oh, God, that yeah. brown conversation I have with every brown person. Good like, yeah. you know, where do you live? Aunties and uncles asking me, how much money do you make? None of your business. <laughs> it's not for you. Yeah. Why do you need to know? Language is powerful. I think there's a lot of yeah. stuff in the Bong language where we're beating around the bush of it. So in a lot of times in counseling... I know that there isn't a word technically for domestic violence that they will be able to comprehend without it sounding like textbook language, if that makes sense. Mm, like, okay. what? That's really Kotin Bangla. That's complex yeah, Bangla. Right. So I'll just say what I hear. Like, problems in the family that might erupt or um, emerge, rather. And then it's almost like the light bulb goes off. And I'm like, okay, that's the starting point. We found the general vicinity of what we want to talk about and then just mm. kind of... Honestly, it feels like I'm beating around the bush, but eventually trying to get to that point of like, this is domestic violence. And I think 
you're gonna have to find some word in that that like like a sibling word and just try to bounce off of there sometimes unless now they're incorporating bangla in english there's this interesting like lingua franca mm. where like you'll watch a nat dog and they'll use so much english so maybe they'll just say boundaries
all of the BS and find the root of the problem. And I think as far as mental health and the Desi condition, trauma is the root of the problem in a lot of ways. Thank you, Tanushree and Jimon, for having me. I think it is a lifelong process to understand our various responses to trauma, to understand the roots of what's going on inside of ourselves. Of course, it is possible to rise above violence, but it is a process and just coming to that awareness of what that looks like in our day-to-day lives and how it's going to play out. And I commend anyone and everyone on that journey. I know it's not easy and it's going to be different and it's going to be complex for folks, but awareness really is the first step. And I think having avenues such as the Daisy condition will be very helpful for us to understand where others are coming from. I think a lot of it is peer-to-peer support. So that's certainly one place of resilience that we can access. And it could be in research and reading about it, talking to someone about it. And if anyone is in immediate need, there are certainly resources out there 24-7 with language access, as Tanushree mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, where you have a safe space to reach out and just talk about what's going on and maybe think of how to move forward. And it's really up to you whether or not you want to move forward and how you want to go about it. So there is a choice. There is agency, even if it doesn't feel like it to whoever's listening. There is hope. And just keep at it and take it easy. Definitely take care of yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is such a loaded topic. And I feel like, you know, Shima and I are not experts in any way. And we keep saying this. And it was really good to have someone who's had the firsthand experience dealing with these people. I learned a lot. Thanks to everyone that has ever come forward. Yeah. Was brave enough to, you know, take those steps. Definitely a shout out to them. Okay, so that concludes our episode of The Daisy Condition. Reach out to us if you have anything you want to say. Reach out to us if you have experienced trauma bonding, if you have experienced any of the things that we've talked about and you just want someone to talk to or you have a point that you want to make. We are available at thedaisycondition at gmail.com or The Daisy Condition on Instagram and Facebook. Bye!